0: A very important topic that we need to discuss as we're thinking about the practical nature of the Christian life. And following up with our discussion last episode, dealing with the importance of doctrine. One of the doctrines in Christianity that often goes neglected is the doctrine of sin. The technical term for that is harmatology. And the doctrine of sin is super important when we're thinking about practical theology or pastoral theology, because as Sinclair Ferguson is going to go on to point out in this book, before we fly to the doctrines that people tend to want to talk about, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, those kinds of things, it's very important for us to have a sober and realistic and biblical understanding of what sin is and what it has done In light of what scripture says. And in this chapter, Sinclair Ferguson is going to focus our attention on the doctrine of the image of God, the Imago Dei. And in focusing in the doctrine of the image of God, he is going to talk about what it means for sin to deface the image of God such that the image of God really doesn't function the way it ought to anymore. It really becomes an anti-God image. And so super excited about this episode. This um, uh, th- These points that are made in this chapter are really, really important, critical. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about sin in our church age today, the church um, culture in which we're living today. A lot of people have sort of unbiblical notions about what sin is, unrealistic notions about what sin is. Some people are paranoid about sin uh, in ways that are unhealthy and unbiblical, and so hopefully we can Help kind of uh, untangle a lot of these misunderstandings, but as we do that, uh, once again, I am joined by two uh, great guys, uh, my dear friends, Mike Tiemann, Kevin Moore, back for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. And I want to I want to begin here with Mike and just kind of get your thoughts, your initial thoughts about these um, these points that Sinclair is making here, Mike, in this chapter regarding sin and what he calls the defacing. Or, or excuse me, what he calls God's broken image. Uh, what stood out to you as you looked over this chapter?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many things that stood out to me. First off, it's great to be back with you guys and my, my Texas brethren, and I feel like I'm uniquely positioned here in California to really talk about sin, right? Because it's crazy out here. It's it's going down, um, and I think you nailed it on the head. The, the importance, he says here in quoting J.C. Ryle, is that the... The plain truth is that the right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, conversion, sanctification are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. Right? Unless we have that understanding of of sin, that proper understanding of sin, the dominoes uh, from that point on in theology just kind of stop.
0: Amen. No, very, very, too, very true. It's it's so important that when people uh, approach a doctrine uh, by itself, you know, Sinclair is isolating the doctrine of sin, but we understand that all theology works together. uh, That every doctrine informs every other doctrine because what we're getting from Scripture is an organic revelation where everything goes uh, together. So, yeah, really, really great. Great point. Kevin, what about you, brother?
2: yeah I mean I love just how he uh, he began in the quote from JC Ryle where he says that God uh, the first thing that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and show that show him that he is a guilty sinner and it really reminded me of Calvin's Institutes when he says without knowledge of self there is no knowledge of God and without knowledge of God there is no knowledge of self and the reality of the situation is that we must acknowledge that we've sinned against God God is holy Holy. He is just. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that he satisfied the wrath of God. You know, as I was reading this, I was thinking of a couple of verses too, just in, you know, obviously Romans chapter three, 10 through 20, but in verse 19, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. And you even see even the apostle Paul in first Timothy one 15, what does he say? He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am foremost acknowledging that that again that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of god and first john chapter one sums it up perfect too you know if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and that's and i love how sinclair ferguson started with the jc ryle quote because the reality is, is that when we see that we have broken God's law, that we've sinned against him and we know who God is, again, that's the beauty of the gospel. And we run to the cross and we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so I love again, how he starts with this and talking about sin, because again, if, if we just begin with Jesus died for you, I mean, that's just a modern message that a lot of people, you know, pastors or, um, you know, you can go to evangelical crusades. They'll just say, come to Jesus. He loves you. But again, we have to see and we have to acknowledge that we've sinned against God.
0: Amen. No, that's, that is so good. And I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson begins talking about the logic of the gospel and really begins to... Uh, put the meat on the bones of the gospel, so to speak, because it's really important for people to really understand where does the gospel come from, right? That the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy that is given to us through Jesus Christ is not some arbitrary thing. Uh, It is not that God is simply uh, wanting to show us favors and just arbitrarily dispensing some sort of benevolent action upon us but it really requires for us to understand how the logic of the gospel works and so what what did you guys think about that because he he makes a statement at the bottom of page 9 where he says we would still need the love and the tenderness of god even if man had not fallen into guilt and corruption, and I take that there to be that, yes, we would have experienced the love and tenderness of God, even if the fall would not have happened. Uh, But that would have been God as a benevolent creator, not as a redeemer, because we wouldn't have been redeemed in that sense. But he says, but the greater burden of the gospel is that our situation is infinitely more serious and critical. We will never properly understand the work of God which takes place in the Christian life, unless we first of all have some kind of grasp of why we need the grace of God. And so, Mike, what did you think about that, that section there?
1: Yeah, great. I mean, I wrote on the top of my book here is that we first need to understand the why, right? Mm-hmm. Just that, that why question, right? And he uses fierce language, right? The burden yeah. of the gospel, right? Infinitely more serious and critical, um, you know, that's that's strong language that is absent from the church in, in many gospel presentations, is you know, we could say with a nice southern accent that you're all good people and just smile and and you know accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But what do you need to be saved from? Like what is infinitely more serious and critical, right? Unless we have that weight of the criticalness of our sin, the criticalness of our condition, the four points that he's about to go into and and break down that are, are massively burdensome
0: mm.
1: and deadly, right? Like mm. that's, you know, it's deadly, right? Sin brings death, right? The penalty of the 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 fall from the covenant of works that, that we, we failed, that is death, right? What do we need yeah. to be saved from? Mm. You know, unless we have that why question answered, well, the gospel doesn't make sense. That's the large logical starting point.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, we're we're saved from God and for God. I mean, we are saved from the holy and righteous wrath of God that Christ paid that penalty on the cross for us. Again, He was a propitiation for our sins. And so, as you as you said, Mike, that's. Uh, That's what often the gospel message is today in in many churches today is, is come to Jesus. He loves you. And you know, an individual might think to themselves, look, I've tried sex. I've tried drugs. I've tried alcohol. I've tried it all. Why don't I give Jesus a try? But as you know, you've heard this illustration before too, but it's like going to the doctor and it's like, take this pill. It's going to cure your life. And okay, well, why do I need to take that? And so I love what you said there, Mike is is we need to know why, but if the doctor comes in and says you 're going to die in twenty four hours, you need to take this pill you 're going gl- to gladly. Take the pill. And you know, and obviously, Galatians talks about that. The law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And we see our sin. We see the holiness of God. We see who He is. And the grace of God is so magnified that God is so gracious, so kind, so merciful that He would send Christ to pay the penalty that we, uh, obviously, to pay the penalty that we deserve. And uh, what a beautiful truth that is and and that's the glory of the gospel that's the good news and unfortunately again today there's so many different approaches you know to the gospel message to christianity and so i know some of those could be um just that moralistic therapeutic approach to christianity today and um again it's not the gospel message though
1: yeah, we ha- we have a gospel message. I think in our American Christianity, that is more of a self help gospel, right? Is just you you you're just degrees off, and if we could just correct the degrees, kind of move the scale a little bit, right? In in a moralistic way, or in in some kind of way, th- then you're going to be better off, right? Emilio, yeah, bring it. What do you think about that?
0: <laughs> no, I think you're. I think you're. I think you're totally right. I I just think that as as we look at the logic of the gospel when we think about why the gospel is so important and why we need to understand the basis for the grace of god the love of god the mercy of god if we don't do this um, what ends up taking place of the true gospel the 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 real burdens of what sinclair ferguson is talking about is you're going to you you what you're going to do is you're going to produce moralist ultimately you're going to produce people that conform to an external ritual or an external practice, or they just live their lives kind of uh, uh, going through these religious duties, these sort of, you know, as they say, going through the motions, going to church every week, listening to a sermon, right? And what happens is that that results in a cheapening of Christianity. And ultimately, it's a deficient, unbiblical spirituality because Anybody can engage in the art of therapy. Anybody can get involved in psychology. Anyone can tell you techniques on how to become a better version of yourself. we It's like we hear that tagline everywhere today in evangelicalism. People are saying, to be the best version of yourself, you need to add this and this and this and this. Now, that sounds a lot like what you hear from self-help programs in the world. That sounds like what you hear coming from you know, Tony Robbins or, you know, uh Jordan Peterson or something like that. It's, well, you can become a better person if you just address these character flaws that you have. Or if you add these rituals to your life, if you become more faithful in your finances, if you begin to tithe more faithfully, right? If you surround yourself with more positive thinking people, that... That's not Christianity yet. (laughs) You're 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 not at Christianity yet. So far, all you have is psychological therapy, and ultimately, where that leads to is a unbiblical position of the self, which is ultimately this autonomous sort of uh, you know rebellious sort of selfish, narcissistic approach to who you really are before God. And that's why it's important, you know, that uh, what Sinclair is going to focus on in terms of the different aspects of what sin really does to us is he focuses on how sin actually truly affects us. And, and it's not, it doesn't affect us just by making our circumstances difficult or uh, hindering us from becoming the right personality or taking the right vocation or career. Again, those are all things that anyone can add to their lives. You know, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but Scientology um, has recently launched their own TV channel on cable. They, they, have the, they have a channel on cable dedicated to Scientology where 24-7 they are teaching the, the, the philosophy and psychology and the religion of Scientology. And the entire Scientology emphasis is all about what you can do to become the best version of yourself, or really, ultimately, to tap into who you really are. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, but L. Ron Hubbard spent quite considerable time in Eastern spirituality. He went to the East. He spent time in, in uh, Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism and Eastern uh, spirituality. And it's all, again, it's all about self-realization. But that is not what the gospel is teaching at all. The gospel is not teaching us that through techniques, we can achieve a better version of ourselves. We can rid ourselves of the things that we don't want, the negative things that plague us in our life. And so that's why Sinclair Ferguson's different aspects are so key here. The very first thing here is that he talks about... Um, well, he elaborates on these points, and he talks about defining sin and getting sin right. And so, I don't know, Kevin, I wanted you to talk about that. When we think about what sin is, why is it important to have a biblical uh, definition of sin? It's so important, because we can say, well, sin is ugly. Sin is, sin is suffering. Sin is, you know, um, murder, murder. But we we can't just talk about different aspects of sin. We need to actually define what sin is. So why yes. don't you why don't you just dive into that?
2: Yeah, I would start at First John three four. The Bible says sin is lawlessness, and I love how Ferguson Sinclair Ferguson defines sin too. He says this. He says sin is missing the mark of the goal which God has appointed, and falling short of the glory of God which we were created to enjoy. And again, I mean, if we give it another definition, we go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And, you know, as R.C. Sproul says, too, we commit cosmic treason and we have to know what sin is. We're under the holy and righteous wrath of God. We have rebelled against them and we deserve his punishment but again, that's the beauty of the gospel that Christ came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, took the punishment that we deserved and rose from the dead. And, and looking at that and understanding again what sin is, is it, it, it paints, it gives us the picture, the beauty of the gospel. Um, again, as we, as we've talked about is we have to know what sin is. If we're going to embrace the gospel, we can't just say, Oh, Jesus just died. And well, why Mike, you talked about that earlier. Well, why, why did he die? And that's that's an important thing that we must understand and I think Sinclair Ferguson does a great job of that and he even goes on talking about the image of God and how we have defaced that and so um I wonder you want to elaborate on that too just that section about the image of God and how that's been defaced as a result of sin.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, the image of God, I think first has to be properly defined. Right? just like sin we need to understand god's image and i think for a lot of people in evangelicalism and christianity uh, when we think about god's image a lot of times we might think about the image of god having to do with man having uh you know dignity and worth and meaning and that man was created in god's image therefore uh, man is like god in many ways Uh, that's actually kind of like a textbook definition you'd find in wayne grudem or burkhoff for example that man is like God in many ways, he is a rational being, he is you know he possesses a spiritual component to his to his nature, and all of that is fine, but the net na- you know I love what Sinclair Ferguson says in uh in, in page ten of this chapter when he talks about the image of God at the bottom of this page, he says the image of God probably means that God originally made man to reflect his glory his holy character and his position as bearing bearing rightful rule over all of his creation. And this, this is great, and this actually ties into a much deeper uh, theology about the image of God. But y- you think of our world right now, and what people in the culture right now are selling. Almost everywhere you look, whether it's politics, entertainment, uh, you know, technology, media, Uh, you know, fashion, whatever, everything has to do with obtaining some sort of meaning and value for yourself, that if you only engage life in this way, then you will truly come into a self-awareness of who you are. So the image of God tells us who we are, And who is man? What was man created to be? And I'm so glad that Sinclair will take us to uh, Genesis to emphasize this. But at the original creation order, the original Genesis design, we understand that Adam was created to be God's representative, but he's also created to be, uh, in a sense, a king under God. God a priest under God, a prophet under God. And therefore, Adam, created in God's image, when the image was working and functioning rightly, we have creatures that are created in God's image and are to be God's representatives of his glory as they function along the lines of a prophet, priest, and king of God in his world, in his sanctuary, in his temple, and that we are to minister in his temple, that we are to spread the glory of God abroad and throughout all of the earth for the sake of God. And so talk about meaning. This world will not give you any purpose whatsoever that can even come close to what we were actually created for, which is to be God's representatives, his prophet, priests, and kings, who spread the knowledge of him everywhere, as we conform to his law, God is conforming us to the image of God, Um, Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3, for example, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, for example, telling us explicitly that to be in God's image means that you have a right knowledge of God, you have a right knowledge. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that to be conformed to the image of God means that you have righteousness and holiness. And so um, this is what a lot in, in Reformed theology has been drawn out, that the image of God has a lot to do with creatures being in communion with God and having a right knowledge of God and religious fellowship with God. And that now, because of sin, has been distorted and can only be restored through Jesus Christ. And so it's so important to understand that the image of God is much much bigger than just telling us we shouldn't commit abortion murder right it's not just that uh, the, the image of God is telling us that human beings have worth and dignity it's a religious uh it's a religious phenomenon from beginning to end it's a god centered god ordered and God-ordained thing. And, um, and, and so, I don't know, that's where my mind goes when I think about the image of God. Mike, you want to add something to that?
1: Yeah, I think that that was glorious. And I think we do well in our theology to have a good grasp that the image of God <clears throat> description is more than we're just creative beings too, right? There's often such a simplistic definition but there is a, a high and, and lofty purpose and communion and fellowship and, and religious uh, affections, religious, you know, uh, involvement between the creature made in the image of God and our, our creator. Now, but Genesis 3 happened, right? And, and then Sinclair goes on, right. you know, to be like, okay, now he's asking some important questions. Right, that that are naturally follow. The fall happened. What happened to that image? What what was the outcome? And he says, theologians, middle of chapter or middle of page eleven, theologians have often discussed the interesting questions here. Does Scripture teach that man is no longer uh, in the image of God? So is that is that the direction we want to go? That due to the fall, man is no longer uh, representing in the image of God, or does it suggest that the image remains? but it is; it has been grossly defaced. Um, and then he kind of takes the gloves off here in such a great way that I was so glad he did. And he says, in many ways, that is an even more tragic prospect, right? And, and the, that is ref- he's referring to is that the image remains, but has been grossly defaced. It hasn't been removed. It's just been grossly defaced. Then he says, we might well be justified in thinking that there could be no greater disaster than that the likeness of God should be exterminated. But in fact, there is. What if the image of God in which his greatness and glory are reflected becomes a distortion of his character? What if instead of reflecting his glory, man begins to reflect the very antithesis of God? What if God's image becomes an anti-god? This essentially is the affront which fallen man is to God. He takes all that God has lavished upon him to enable him to live in free and joyful obedience, and he transforms it into a weapon, into a weapon by which he can oppose his maker. The very breath which God gives him a thousand times a day each day he abuses by his sin, right? The result of the fall has distorted us to such a capacity that we have defiled the image of God. Yeah. Right? Like, whoa, right? Mm-hmm. That, that theology of just that depravity and what the fall, what Genesis 3 has done to us, he just takes there to a super, superlative degree.
0: Mm. Mm, yeah, absolutely, Kevin. Any thoughts on that part? Because that's that's a really powerful part. I I've got that that whole section that you read there. I've got that all underlined and starred and quotes and you know, it's a phenomenal. It's kind of it's kind of the the uh, the genius of Sinclair Ferguson. The guy is such a great writer. You know, but I mean, uh, there's not a word of that that I don't think anybody can disagree with that through sin, the image of God actually becomes the anti-God, which is amazing to me.
2: Yeah. You know, Mike, you read it, but um, I mean, the thing that stood out to me, especially in in this, uh, on this page is he takes all that God has lavished upon him to enable him to live in free and joyful obedience. And he transforms it into a weapon by which he can oppose his maker. And then you read this to the very breath, which God gives him thousands of times each day he abuses by his sin. And I thought it was just a great segue into the next section too of a man under the dominion of sin and death. And, and as we talk about total depravity, that, that man who is dead in sin is not able to convert himself. You know, you think Ephesians chapter two, verse one, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, what can a dead man do? nothing we're not the individuals that are treading water and all of a sudden this uh you know this lifeline comes out to us and we reach out for us no we are at the bottom of the ocean we are rotting and god must resurrect us spiritually from the dead and you know jesus talks about that you must be born of the spirit in john chapter three and um you know I've, i've i've told people this before if if you are dead in your trespasses and sins you can lay the glory of christ eternal life um before them, and you can lay sin before them, and if they're dead in their trespasses and sin, they will choose sin every single time yeah. and ezekiel thirty six talks about that is that we must have a new heart, God must give that to us, he must regenerate it, he must yeah. raise us from the dead and I and like I said, I thought it was a perfect segue um, into that next section of a man under the dominion of sin and death,
0: yeah, I think Calvin had a really good insight. Um, just right before that dominion of sin and death section, Sinclair interacts with Calvin a little bit here, and what Calvin pointed out I thought was so important for Christians to grasp. And you know, Mike, you and I we've been uh, we've been talking here lately about Voss and the deeper Protestant conception, which you know hopefully we'll be doing a episode on that soon <laughs> you know some deeper some deeper theology we're getting <laughs> right uh this is practical theology but it shows you how intertwined it all is right because here we are dealing with practical theology but if you're talking about the image of god i mean uh, uh, here you have a quote by calvin that really uh easily corresponds with what Gerhardus Voss would teach concerning the deeper Protestant conception, because for, just for folks, give you the kind of the cliff notes on that, uh, the deeper Protestant conception for, for Voss is just the idea of how is man going to advance into a higher quality of life via the Spirit? And for Voss, central to that is a passage like First Corinthians fifteen verses forty-two to forty-nine, where the Apostle Paul says there that even as we have borne the earthly image, we will bear the heavenly image. And how do we do that? Well, of course, through Christ, who becomes the life-giving Spirit. And what what uh, what Paul there is arguing is that Christ comes into such perfect functional unity with the Spirit of God that he confers the Spirit upon his people. And so we're thinking of passages like in John, the ending of John, where Jesus breathes on his disciples, right, which I think is mainly symbolic of the work of regeneration and the filling of the Spirit and, of course, the day of Pentecost and those things. But it really just shows you what Calvin says. In this book on page 12, just going to read this, the, the little quote there in the middle of the quote where he says that there is a far more rich and powerful grace of God in this second creation than in the first. He's talking about the, the reformation of the image of God. So when God restores the image of God within us, having been marred by sin, something greater than the first image arrives a greater, more powerful deposit of grace arrives. And in fact, that corresponds perfectly with 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 15 that the earthly image, the the image that we had in Adam even, right? And, And the implication is that even in 1 Corinthians, we're talking about Adam before the fall. Before the fall of man into sin, that in contrast to the new image that we're going to have in Christ, that image is like death, Adam's image, and the image of Christ is such such a greater work, such a greater, more superlative reflection of the image of God. I just thought that was a really a really glorious uh, idea. To the promise, right, is that the promise is that as the image of God is restored in man. God is doing such a greater work than anything we have ever seen before, which I think is just glorious. But, but yeah. let's talk, Mike, let's talk a little bit about this, this concept of, of, of the dominion of sin and death, because Ferguson obviously speaks to this, and so many people today are totally confused about this in terms of the doctrine of sin, especially as you think about the extent of the tyranny of sin, I think of people even in the charismatic, or maybe even more appropriately, like in the Word of Faith and in the Pentecostal world, right, where sin is kind of more of a curse, like a spell (laughs) that's over you, like a bad luck charm, you know? And it's, and it's not the, it's not the kind of systemic issue that Bible, the Bible teaches. It's more of a, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a aura that kind of lays over you and, 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 and you need to, you need to wish it away. You need to wish it off into the cornfield. Kind yeah. of bind the devil. You need to so, bind the devil. You know, <laughs> right? de- you know yep. I said, you know, some people live as if the devil's behind every red light, but the reality is, is this, you need to get up earlier not to be late to work. That's it, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> Don't blame the devil for your road rage, you know? Uh, <laughs> but yeah. what do you think about that, Mike, just in terms of having a proper understanding of the dominion of sin?
1: I, I mean, I think that's just... Crucial he he I mean he, in this second section, he gives a a whole series of verses and and everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, right there, he He talks about slavery, the Bible puts that in that context. he quotes Romans chapter eight, verse six and seven. let me just read it for us real quick <clears throat> for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, mm. for it does not submit to god's law, indeed it can not mm. Mm. right that that total dominion of sin over the over the unregenerate um <clears throat> is is total right mm. and and we have so many theological debates that go on that kind of tries to define the degrees of well, well, dead doesn't mean dead dead. It means mostly dead. And, <laughs> and you know, we, it, dead in sins and trespasses. And he uses that, uh, <clears throat> or at the closing of verse 7, there's, there's such a finality, hmm. right? For the mind that is set, that mindset that is set on the flesh is, one, hostile to God. Hmm. It's hostile to God, hmm. right? Uh, for it does not submit to God's law, right? That's, that's hostility, but then he says, indeed, it cannot. Mm. dunatai that, that lacks mm. the ability to actually rise to, to God, right? Yeah. To come up to God, to come up to obedience, to come up to why? Because sin enslaves.
0: Yeah. Totally. And, yeah, and I think, obviously, we're talking, we're on the territory of total depravity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But you guys know, in Reformed theology, we don't just talk about total depravity— But we also talk about total inability. And so when we talk about total inability, what are we talking about there? Kevin, I'll let you explain that, but because I think that's important. I think a lot of people don't understand that total depravity doesn't just mean something like, well, man is really, really sinful.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, total inability that man can do no spiritual good before God. He can do absolutely no spiritual good. Um, you know, if you think of all these religions that are trying to work their way to God, what does is Isaiah 64, 6 say? Obviously, your righteous acts are like filthy rags in the sight of God. And you think even transitioning that to the church and even talking about the seeker-sensitive, right, churches and movements and all that, well, what does Romans 3, 11 say? No one understands. No one seeks for God. Yeah, the ability there is there's a total inability. Man cannot convert himself. He cannot do any spiritual good before God. It's uh, you know you're trying to work your way to God, which most religions or pretty much all religions do. But again, it's simply like filthy rags in the sight of God, and that's why we need the effectual call of God. We need God to raise us from the dead spiritually.
1: Can I read uh, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 6.4 here? Dude, says, we're on the there,
2: Westminster Confession tonight. All we're, right. We're that's go there,
1: right? <laughs> From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined, wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Right That is the state of of the unregenerate, the unsaved, right, wholly inclined under the dominion, um, that's the only choice they have, right? It's just that's their will to follow the yeah the man desires. hates God, yeah the unregenerate
0: man hates God for sure, and you know we started out talking about the logic of the gospel, but you think about what this introduces to the equation of Adam and Eve having fallen into sin. And if Adam and Eve therefore inherited this level of depravity leading to inability, right? Then the next thing that comes in, in the text of Genesis remarkably, right? Is not something that Adam and Eve can do for themselves. Uh, They try that. Remember They try to clothe themselves, and they were unable to do it, (laughs) right? And so that this is a perfect picture of the gospel, because what comes after the violation of the covenant of works, of course, is the word, the positive word of the covenant of grace. And so immediately upon man's sin, and then a demonstration of their inability and their hostility to God, because remember, they were bantering back and forth. (laughs) The serpent lord you know, uh, and Adam says, no, it's a woman you gave me, (laughs) you know, this is, so they start fault finding, and and instead of taking personal responsibility, repentance, and faith, they begin to blame others, right, in their sin, and God has to move by an act of sovereign grace and give a promise, a solemn covenantal promise, that their only hope now, man's depraved and total inable nature, their only hope for their hostility at this point is the work of a mediator who can now come and do what they could not do, namely destroy the works of the devil. And as John, John chapter 1 John 3 says, that's exactly what Jesus came to do, right? He came to what? To destroy the works of the devil. And so it is only through the second Adam. And the covenant of grace, the work of a mediator, that this depravity, inability, and hostility to God can be overcome. And so I don't know if you want to add anything to that, guys, but I just thought, what a glorious place to talk about the covenant of grace because it really shows that's, that's the only hope we have.
1: Amen. Miller, let me jump in with a question here. Yep. I, I didn't know Adam, right? Like I, w- I wasn't there in the garden, I didn't sin. What, why is Adam's sin passed down to me? Why, why am I getting held guilty, right, this kind of federalism or re, uh, realism, you know, in that sense? What, what, what's the big deal? Why would, I, why would I care that Adam and Eve sinned? How does that affect me?
0: Well, that's a great question, um, and it requires the mind of Christ, I think, to accept the answer, because I think the carnal man will never accept the answer. But the answer is federalism. The answer is is that God, in creating man in his image, immediately bestowed upon him, in, in the process of that image endowment, immediately bestowed upon him a word of covenant and identified him and singled him out as the covenant head, as the covenant representative for all mankind, because immediately Upon Adam's successful probation and obedience, those same people would be immediately thanking and praising Adam for his obedience and saying, praise God that Adam did what was right so that here I am now in paradise, in glory. Though I had nothing to do with Adam, yet because he was my faithful representative, I can now be in paradise with God. And therefore, we like the positive aspect of God's justice, but many people don't like the negative aspects of God's justice, which is covenantal justice, federal justice, because we're told in Romans chapter 5 that everyone sinned in Adam. You see? But then we are also told in Romans chapter 5 that in Christ, because of one act of righteousness, because of one act of of of, of, of his obedience— what happens, justification resulted for all, for life, for all men. Justification came and all were justified, all, and then life was passed down to all men. And of course, we know in the context there that all men literally refers to all of Christ's posterity, all of his humanity, all of his people. It's not universalism, but it is showing us how humanity is going to be moved out of the negative aspects of God's justice into the positive aspects of God's justice. And so at that point, we recognize that God as the great king of heaven has the authority to do what he wills with the lower king, the vassal king, Adam, in his earthly commission to be uh, his prophet, priest, and king under the great king and under the conditions of of the covenant of works and so it's you know the answer to that question man is all covenantal so it's uh it is a good question it i think it's a fair question i think for somebody that's new to the christian worldview i think that's exactly where your mind drifts is what does adam have to do with me you know
2: what i mean i would add that too is just like you said the natural man can't receive the things of the spirit of god and to have the mind of christ but i think well you know being in christ the most amazing thing is that the righteousness of christ is imputed to us Mm. right you want to talk about adam said but now we have the righteousness of christ that has credited our account and what what a beautiful thing that is and how undeserved that is
0: no for sure for sure you you know um Sinclair's got a couple more points that I think are relevant and I think are really important to talk about. One of them is the idea of man's guilt before God. And I personally, man, I really loved this because it just reminds me of, you know, what Van Til, uh said so long ago, that the dilemma between, the like, man's greatest dilemma is thoroughly religious, And of course, back then, the word religious was not weird like it is today, (laughs) you know. But back then, when Van Til talks about religious, he's talking about the fact that man is oriented or ordered to God, and that today we're trying to order everything away from God. So let's talk about that, man's guilt before God, and Sinclair does this by interacting with romans chapter two Uh, he makes several observations there but he says that man is guilty not only does he suffer the consequences of sin and human misery but he comes under the condemnation of god and then he goes into romans chapter two verses one to sixteen to substantiate that what did you guys think of that of that text there Mike, I'll start with you.
1: I mean, you know, all this conversation of our federal head in Adam, you know, in our representative there, brings us under a guilty uh, verdict bef- before God. And, and Paul's whole argument at the beginning of, of Romans 1, 2, 3, right, is, is just this sweeping condemnation of mankind yeah. as guilty uh, before God and he says there in the middle we have no works to justify us we have failed to live according to the light God has given us by the standard of Christ's life we are guilty sinners Um, you know thoroughly thoroughly guilty um, <clears throat> amen and so I mean yeah I mean Romans Romans chapter 2 1 through 16 I mean I, how, how deep do you want to get in here
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. I think, I think the beauty of it is that he's, you know, Romans chapter two is all about showing that the verdict of God, right. The judgment of God corresponds righteously with the way that people live. And so that people's lives, right. They will, they will result either in praise and glory and immortality, right. and, and, And eternal life. And that your own life, your own conscience, as he says there, as he talks about there in verses 15 to 17, even people who don't have the law of God, they don't have the, 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 the written word of God, let's say, but you know, they're a law unto themselves. There's a principle in operation. Even with people who do not have the written law of God, they're a law unto themselves because they know that their conscience is either accusing them or excusing them of things that their conduct is doing. And that conduct becomes commensurate with the judgment of God. God
1: And so that God's judgment is
0: absolutely just in the end. Any thoughts, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I love the Sinclair
2: Ferguson's, uh, the last paragraph that he has on the section of man guilt before God. He says this, Paul does not mean that men feel a great sense of guilt, whether they do or not is beside the point. He's describing the divine verdict, not the human psychology, Mm -hmm. but something yet more terrible accompanies this verdict for on his shoulders comes the wrath of God revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness apart from Christ says the apostle of love, the wrath of God remains. And reading that, reading that paragraph there, it just made me think of, um, you know, Romans chapter one. I mean, it's evident creation testifies, right? Ecclesiastes 3, he's placed uh, eternity in man's heart in Romans chapter two. As you said, he's given every man a conscience. And just when he said, it doesn't, doesn't mean that men feel a great sense of guilt. I think of those that have suppressed the truth or their conscience have become seared. It doesn't matter what you feel according to human psychology. It's the truth of the matter
0: that you are under the divine judgment of almighty God. Yeah, when you when you begin to see the true burden of man, even just at a pastoral level when you start counseling people and trying to walk people through their problems, right, as a Christian. This this really needs to be kind of the big picture that we give people to 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 help them to understand that their circumstances is not the true burden that they have. That because if we don't do that, people will start looking for, well, What can relieve my circumstances? If the church doesn't help me relieve my circumstances, my finances, my family problems, my marriage problems, my whatever problems, problems that my anger towards society, uh, culture, you know, uh, substance abuse, whatever, uh, my emotional problems, my psychological problems, all of these things, if the church doesn't help me deal with those things, then I'm out of here. I mean that's really what's going on in the minds of a lot of people. It's our jobs as ministers of the mysteries of God to bring them back to know you that's that all of that that you just described there is all horizontal and you have forgotten the vertical orientation that you really have in this life which is before God. So super important there um, but man, I mean, we can spend all night talking about that, but we do have one last section to get into. Mike, did you have anything you wanted to add to that brother? Because I know that's a super important part, but
1: no, I mean, I, yeah, we can add tons of stuff, but I, let's, let's move on. Satan.
0: Yeah. I think, the, you know, the last one was, was really good because I think it's one, it's kind of like the doctrine of sin, right? The doctrine of demonology and the doctrine of Satan is also vastly misunderstood, (laughs) you know, abused, or outright, I mean, just avoided altogether. You know, a lot of Christians don't even know there's such a thing called demonology, right? Right? Uh, Especially in our culture, where increasingly now in our culture, demonology and stuff like that is either in some kind of zombie movie or (laughs) exorcist movie, right? Or, you know, like we saw in the Grammys, right? Um, Our culture is now glorifying satanic activity and demonic activity, overtly glorifying it. But yet we fail to understand that, in fact, as a result of sin and the defacing of the image of God, man is... Squarely under the dominion of Satan, and where do we begin, Mike? Where do you want to start talking about man being in the grip of Satan?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know. First off, I, I am into everything you said. We kind of a few minutes ago jokingly, you know, we're talking about you know Satan behind every stoplight and stuff, and and we could be accused of. Well, we don't believe there's a spiritual. Element to this, and I was so glad that he actually put this section in here because there is an enemy, and there is a a warfare going on in Ephesians chapter two, uh, verses one through one through three, and one through four. You know, four, chap, verse four giving us the answer. It says, "And you were dead in sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is." Now at work in the sons of disobedience, there's an active spirit of the prince the of this heir, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, that verse is answering everything we've been talking about, uh, of, of condemnation, of everything we've done. And then it gives the but God, and praise God for that but God in verse four, being rich in mercy because of his great yep. love with which he had loved us, right? And, it, and he goes on to, to talk about salvation, which is the closing, closing uh, section of this book. But I'm so glad that he, he included this last section in here, because it is important to realize that the unsaved, the unregenerate person is in slavery to sin and under the power of the prince and power of this heir.
0: Yeah, for sure. And before Kevin goes here, I just want to back up a little bit. I'm glad that you read that passage there in Ephesians because I think we really, really underestimate the potency of that text. Um, That what Paul is giving us there is truly a fundamental, systemic, sweeping commentary on the present evil age. And so this is somewhat of a parallel to Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, and in, in, in Christ having redeemed us out of the present evil age. And almost as an exposition, because there in Galatians chapter 4, he doesn't define what do you mean the present evil age? What does that mean? He defines it here. And he reminds us that the present evil age operates in such a way that we're looking at the world in a course in which it follows. There is a course, a direction. There is a thrust. There is a, uh, there is a governing disposition that governs the way the world works. And that is tethered to the prince of the power. And then it says here of the air. All of which has to do with spiritual, interdimensional theology. That there is a demonic realm, right, that is at work. You know, we know about First John chapter 5, I think it's verse, what, 19 or 20, right, that says, the whole world is in the lap of the evil one. And so, this could be a really useful text, and I've often used it in eschatological context. Just to talk with people that have an exaggerated eschatology and thinking the world's going to get better and better and better, right? And that if, if Christians are just more positive, if we're just more positive about things, then maybe we'd be useful in this world and can actually change things in this world. But you got to remember until the very end, until the very end before the Lord comes, the world and the, and the church Never the two shall meet. <laughs> and and in a sense, those two concepts will be concurrent and antithetical principles that govern the way the world works. And it will that, that tension will never dissolve until Christ comes to destroy the evil one. I mean, that is that that it's just a Titanic uh, point that Paul is making in Ephesians chapter 2. And I think that even in Christian circles that are good and expository and theology, but I think we even undermine just how potent that passage really is to illustrate something personal, like I was dead in trespasses and sins. But Paul is saying something far more cosmic and comprehensive right there in that text. And so I just, sorry, I had to I had to just jump on that before we just leave it so unceremoniously.
1: <laughs> well, Kevin, I think I think we struck a struck a chord I did. in the 1000000 yeah. it yeah. I was like, "Okay, yep. sit back." Yep, that's just I think you guys, the you guys <laughs> I think both you guys
0: got it. I think both of you guys just hit your mute button and just sat back and started listening. <laughs> uh, Kevin, what do you, what what did you want to make out of just this whole concept of Satan's dominion? Yeah, um,
2: I loved what Ferguson said. He says the ultimate tragedy of man's self-understanding is that he actually believes himself to be free. He has the, all the feelings of a free agent, but he does not realize that he is a slave to sin and he serves the will of Satan. And again, man who is dead in their trespass and sin serves the will of Satan. But I love how Ferguson then transitions to the gospel. We've talked about sin. We've talked about, uh, the image of God being defaced. We've talked about how those that are in, in dead in sin, um, how they rebel against God and they actually use the breath that God gives them to to speak against him. Their lives go against what he has commanded. But I love how, how he transitions to the gospel. And he says this, what then are the basic needs which are met in the message of the gospel? And I love how he connects it to what we've just talked about. He says, we need recreation by Christ in order that the image of God, once distorted by sin, may now be restored. We need deliverance from the dominion of sin in order that we may live freely for God. We need to be rescued from the power of Satan so that our lives may be given to Christ the Lord as his glad bond slaves. And lastly, we need to be saved from the wrath of God so that released from this most terrifying of all prospects, we may live the life of forgiven sinners. And so I love Mm. that. Just talking about, yeah, I thought it was exactly, that's the perfect word for it. I thought it was, it was excellent. Amen.
0: Yeah, you know, he ends this whole section now with salvation. And it's very apropos that he did that, because if you think about the pattern of Scripture, I remember uh, just really getting this when I was doing uh, sermons in Isaiah, that the pattern is always the same in a sense, right? There is sin, there is judgment, and then there is salvation, and so we're kind of in that same, you know, it's been called the Romans road for a reason, right? Because that, that kind of is the way that book of Romans also follows. We, we, we get introduced to the horrific, uh, the, the wages of sin until we reach chapter three and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so that is super important. But I want, I, I want both of all of us here. Just to, just to take a minute here and talk about a different aspect of the salvation that Sinclair Ferguson is trying to emphasize here. I'll, Mike, I'll let you go first, and then I'll finish up after Kevin.
1: Yeah, I have, I have two points that I kind of want to briefly make. First, he says, the gospel does not make us like Adam. This is in the bottom of page 14. The gospel does not make us like Adam in his innocence. It makes us like Christ. In, the, in all the perfection of his reflection of God, right? When we were talking about that earlier on in this podcast, it, it's not bringing us back to Adam, it's bringing us to Christ, right? And it's restoring what we need. And stepping back and looking at this whole chapter, we started this episode talking about the need to have a correct theology of, of sin, right? And we, we need that black velvet backdrop, that places the diamond of the gospel upon that that just shines and magnifies the 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 rays of of light that are coming into it, right and and the necessity of this chapter in our theology um both in a in an academic sense and in a practical sense, because it explains who who we who we once were as dead in sins and trespasses, what we've become, but God being rich in mercy, right. He saved us. He answered all the needs that, that we had. We need a recreation by Christ. We need deliverance from dominion of sin and Satan. Uh, we, we need um, deliverance from the wrath of Almighty God. Um, and the gospel provides that for us. I was reading Joel Beakey and Mark Jones's uh, Puritan theology book earlier, and they they'd said this in the, the chapter on, on talking about sin. It says the Puritans had a high view of the grace of God in the salvation of sinners because in the first place, they had a high view of sin, hmm. right? They understood sin in its appropriate context. They're, they are magnifying the severity of sin and therefore magnifying the grace of God and forgiving us sinners. And he goes on... Uh, they go on to say, one might even say that the real issue that separates Reformed theology from other theological traditions is how sin is viewed. Right? It sets us, sets us apart.
0: Amen. Beautiful.
1: Kevin?
2: Yeah. Um, obviously, as Mike just said, we were, we're, we've been talking about sin, and it's under, we need to know what sin is, because again, as Calvin said, without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. And the reality of the self is, or the reality of the situation is that is when we see our sin, we see the holiness of God. We see who God is and that he must punish sin. And, and like you said, I think, uh, Mike, you said it perfectly with the Puritans is they had a high view of sin. I would say today in our culture, and our society, people have a very, very low view of sin. And we need to get back to having that high view of sin because the, then we see that Christ paid the penalty that we deserve. And I love what, how Ferguson ends, ends this chapter is about a paragraph before his, uh, um, his last paragraph, but he says this, he says, Un, in Christ, we shelter from the wrath of God, knowing that he has borne our guilt. Again, he's a propitiation. He satisfied the holy and righteous wrath of God. In the Second Corinthians five twenty one, he was made sin for us, although he himself knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. First yeah. Peter three eighteen, he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Colossians two fifteen, on the cross he triumphed over Satan and exposed him as our enemy. Revelation twelve ten, in his name therefore we may also conquer. And I love how he ends with First Corinthians one thirty: Christ is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And unless we see our sin, we will never run to the cross. We will never see the beauty of the gospel. And um, again, I I love how Ferguson just points that out here in this chapter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. And, you know, the way that I would want to finish this up is just by returning to what we said earlier about Adam and the way that people might object to being or having to be identified with Adam, what salvation in Christ reminds us of is that in fact, we are not the second Adam. Uh, we, We are not another representative before God. And therefore, it doesn't depend on my obedience and my performance. And so while we may not like that Adam was our federal head, and despite whether we like it or not, the justice of God is found there. But the good news for us is that we can live our lives now, especially in the Christian life. Let's use, let's use the name of Sinclair's book. In the Christian life, we are not Adam 2.0, walking around the garden trying to earn or merit eternal life. That work has been done for us. And so what the gospel tells us is that it is Christ's riches, but it is also at his expense because he alone can fulfill and obey and merit what Adam could not. And we can't do it. And so thank God that the Bible only presents the first and last Adam, and we are not him. And therefore, in this way, the gospel is glorious And the gospel is liberating because we don't have to, the work has already been done. It's not for us to do it. We don't have to jump on our treadmill of self-righteousness. And yet, what do you see so many Christians doing today? So many, you know, I got to interview Michael Horton uh, some time ago. And he said, you know, in the church today, so many people are trying to throw stuff up to God, trying to impress him with things that we've done for him, And he said, what we need is we need the kind of spirituality in where Christ is the one delivering the goods. And that's exactly what this book reminds us of, is that Christ alone can and has delivered the goods based on his perfect life. So right on, guys. Awesome episode. Awesome chapter. Really looking forward uh, to the next one. Don't know if we're going to jump uh, immediately into the next one and talk about the plan of grace that Ferguson uh, focuses on. But one way or another, we'll tackle something, and I'm sure I'm sure it'll be great. So great to great to be with you guys again. God bless you guys, and for our audience, thank you for listening in. Make sure and tune in next time for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. God bless.